Church, if you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to the book of Judges and find chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. And as I was preparing for this morning, I came across an article written by a fellow pastor who had himself preached through Judges and who'd begun his series by asking his entire congregation to stand. And then he invited those who'd never heard a sermon from the book of Judges except for the Gideon story to sit down. And he said about 50% of his people returned to their seats. And then he asked for those who had never heard a sermon from the book of Judges except for the Samson story to take a seat. And he said a further 20% went back to their seats. And his final question he asked, how many had ever heard an entire series on the book of Judges? And the resulting number was, in his words, a hundred times smaller than Gideon's tiny army when God finished sending his troops home. So, does anybody want to hazard a guess as to how many people remain standing? Three. Three people. So, slightly more or slightly fewer than we have this morning due to the snow outside. And we're not going to repeat that man's experiment this morning, but I can attest to the fact that I've never heard an entire series on Judges until the one we began last week. And why that is, I have no idea, but I believe, church, that this is a story that we must see together because of the dire warning that it presents. The Judges' overall message is that God's people self-destruct when they disobey Him and when they instead get their values from their pagan neighbors. And as Christians this morning, in, in a culture closely associated with the major tenets of our faith, and yet which, which may be best described as decadent morally, our culture, decadent economically, decadent politically. Much that we face, I believe, mirrors that of Israel in Canaan. And so we need to cling to our God whose salvation is so very great. So with that said this morning, if your Bibles are open to Judges 2, I'd like to begin reading our text for this morning that begins in verse 6. Judges chapter 2, and it begins in verse 6. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all of the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath Herez in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that, a whole generation had been gathered to their fathers. Another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. And let me stop right there this morning and make a first point that I, one commentator calls the continuing emergency of our faith. The continuing emergency of our faith. So as our text begins this morning, Joshua has dismissed the Israelites to take possession of the promised land. Now, if you were with us last week, then you might be surprised by the apparent redundancy of this opening line, because chapter 1 begins similarly, only there we're told that Joshua has died. So clearly all that we're reading about here in chapter 2 doesn't chronologically follow chapter 1. Instead, what I believe our author is doing here is interpreting the events which he's previously analyzed. 
So chapter 1 recounts in an almost emotionally indifferent manner Israel's military conquest of Canaan following Joshua's death. Now, our author is providing a passionate indictment of Israel's spiritual failing, a faith failing that has massive significance for us even today because of the nature of Baal's worship. And so let me explain. In the beginning, and I mean by that phrase, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, he created people too. And in God's very first words to Adam and Eve, he commanded them to be fruitful and increase in number to fill the earth and subdue it. And I'm sure many of you recall that command, be fruitful and increase in number. And in this paradigm establishing declaration, God ordained human sexuality to be an exclusively human activity. Yahweh didn't have a consort, if you will. He didn't have a wife. His interaction with creation came through his, his creating, his ordering, his overseeing, and his judging. So the God of the Bible isn't present as a reproductive power in nature. He's holy. He's transcendent and therefore far above all that he's made. It says, one pastor theologian observes, Yahweh sits on a throne high and lifted up from which he rules, creates, preserves, and redeems. He doesn't lounge in some celestial boudoir copulating with his feminine divine counterpart. Now, I doubt that these biblical realities shock us this morning. At least, at least I hope they don't. But this was not the case for the Canaanites or for any of the other pagan religions that composed the promised land. In Canaanite theology, Baal, their god of fertility and storms, had a consort with whom he copulated frequently, thereby effecting earth-showering rains which produced fields that were filled with crops. And so for the Canaanites, the revival of nature was due to sexual intercourse between Baal and his partner. And, and so in keeping with the Canaanites' understanding of the God's relationship to creation, they believed or they saw themselves as, in, as capable of influencing Baal to act on their behalf, thus guaranteeing them the needed reins for their agrarian society. In other words, they practiced cult prostitution. Canaanite religion held that the copulation of worshipers with temple tramps encouraged Baal to get busy. And this is what resulted in nature flowing forth in rain and in grain and wine and in oil. But none of this occurred unless the powers that be, Baal, was bedded. Now, I doubt it's a stretch for us this morning to imagine, even as distant as we may be from the events described in our text, but I doubt it's a stretch for us to imagine a young Jewish man living in the Promised Land, newly settled here in Canaan, preparing his fields. And as he does so, he, he notices his neighbor watching him closely. And neighbor suddenly comes over, and this Canaanite calls out and strikes up a conversation with our hypothetical Israelite. And they start chatting, subjects turn from different things, maybe sports, late news, and they get to the subject of religion, at which point the Hebrew excitedly starts to relate the stories of God's provision of their exodus and his watching over the people while they wandered in the wilderness. But as things go, typically with conversations regarding religion, it sort of times slows down. So the Canaanite redirects the conversation to their fields and to the apparent uh, lack of understanding that this Israelite has in terms of farming. He comments on his, his, his need for aid and, and offers as a successful Canaanite farmer offers to let this new neighbor in on the secrets to successful Canaanite farming, closing with an invitation to accompany him to their high place for their midweek worship service. Now, sadly, 
while that conversation is hypothetical, its suggested outcome wasn't, was it? As recorded by the psalmist, Psalm 106, Israel did not destroy the peoples as the Lord had commanded them to, but they mingled with the nations and adopted their customs. They worshipped their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was desecrated by their blood. They defiled themselves by what they did. By their deeds, they prostituted themselves. Therefore, the Lord was angry with his people and abhorred his inheritance. What happened? How did the people so divinely selected, directed, instructed, and protected stray? And what lessons might we, church, learn from their experiences? And I believe one point that we might draw from our text this morning is that they failed to separate themselves from the surrounding paganism. They failed to separate themselves from the surrounding paganism. And we just heard the psalmist's words to this effect. And if you were with us last week, then you probably recall the accusations of chapter 1, verse 27, and then again verse 29, 30, 31, 32, even 33. And each of these indictments came because Israel did not drive out the Canaanites in their entirety. They left a remnant, which we conceded was a divine decree at the start because Israel wasn't capable of managing the land alone. However, as they grew in strength and enabling that came from Yahweh, they, rather than remove the land's last inhabitants, they enslaved them. Israel allowed Canaan to remain, thereby leaving vestiges of their toxic religion, resulting in what we read there in chapter 2 and verse 11 and 12. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. Now church, we don't have a mandate today to wield the Lord's sword in judgment against the surrounding pagan cultures in which we live. But I believe we are still called to separate ourselves such that we shine like stars in the universe. And so to this end, when Jesus was preparing to return to the Father, you may recall how he prayed for his disciples, a prayer that John recorded in his Gospel, chapter 17, where Christ asked not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They're not of the world, Jesus prayed, even as I'm not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Now, Christians have taken a number of approaches over the ages as they've attempted to be in and not of. On the one hand, monasteries seemed to provide safety and seclusion from the world's corrupting influence, didn't they? While on the other, you had politics that promised the, a power to, to drive out all of the evil, but neither proved successful. And I believe it's because in both instances, the church assumed the problem to be external to the human heart. But since corrupting influence isn't like a cold that one catches when it's simply sick outside, sin's a disorder with which we're born. And church, this is the point that I believe we see evidenced here. Despite Israel's military dominance, they failed to separate themselves from the surrounding paganism because their hearts were wicked. The temptation that Canaanite religion's temple worship posed was just that. It was just a temptation. It wasn't sin for Israel until they joined in. And the Lord knew Israel's heart's condition 
Therefore, he knew they needed to be as far from temptation as possible. And church, so do we. We're not strong. <laughs> we are no better than Israel. Our hearts are depraved. And therefore, any willful exposure to temptation will inevitably lead to sin. We can't stop ourselves because we're broken. And whoever suggests otherwise is deluded. It's only by God's grace and enabling that we may resist the devil. Therefore, we have to make every effort to discern sin's dangers and to separate ourselves while standing firm in God's strength. And to this end, and particularly as it relates to the practices of Canaan church, we've got to be on guard against the rampant misdirection, misuse, and misunderstanding of human sexuality, particularly as it's expressed in our culture. And I was recently reading a book that detailed Southern Baptist beginnings in light of their cultural concerns and their involvement in social ministries. And I was struck by the author's observation that one of Southern Baptist's chief concerns in the closing stages of the 19th century, so we're talking late 1800s, but one of their chief concerns then was the deterioration of the family. They believed that as that foundation eroded, weakened, that the whole fabric of society would come apart. Now, how prophetic has that proved to be? Church, we've got to be a people who seek to separate ourselves from all that is sinful. Now, at times, that may be demonstrated physically as we need to remove ourselves from a tempting situation, but at other times, I believe it might simply be mental or, or emotional as we have to intentionally focus our thoughts and our feelings on something other than, say, say the, the, the accusations that have been made against us or, or the wrong that's been committed against us. Israel chose to be chummy with Canaan. They dwelt side by side with the sin, and may we learn from their mistake because Israel failed to separate themselves from that surrounding paganism because they lacked experiential religion. And, and so let me explain what I mean by that. They lacked experiential religion. Verse 10 there, our author informs us that following Joshua's and the last of the elders' deaths, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he'd done for Israel. So if we contrast this new generation here with the preceding one, then we might be tempted to lay the blame at the historian's feet, or more precisely as resulting from Israel's lack of historical presence. And in this light, this, this new generation's problem was simply one of ignorance, wasn't it? it? They just didn't know about Yahweh and his works. But friends, this presumption is most certainly false, or in the least incomplete, because verse 10 states that they neither knew about Yahweh or what he'd done. And certainly this doesn't intend that an entire generation had never heard of Yahweh. It would be unthinkable that not a single one of Joshua's grandchildren would have ever heard of Yahweh. And so clearly, what I believe is intended here is the truth that an entire generation then grew up who cared nothing for Yahweh, who he was, and all he had done for Israel. And just in terms of linguistics here, it's interesting to note that this same expression is used later to describe the priest Eli's two raunchy sons, Hophnius and, or Hophnius and Phinehas, Hophni and Phinehas. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. And here, as priests, sons, they most certainly had heard of Yahweh. But the fact was, they just didn't care. And these two men, despite God's call to priestly holiness, they stole from the worshipers at the tent of meeting. They slept with the women who served at the entrance. And so what I believe our author is describing here in Judges 2 is an attitude of indifference towards God. And church, I believe this is a perennial 
peril. Because how often does history evidence this very fact is the children of godly men and women don't follow in their parents' footsteps. And I have a friend who's, whose mother and father loves the Lord, but he doesn't care. You know, as a child, he was taught about the Lord, and he was led to engage in all the practices that mark a Christ follower, but I don't know that he was ever taught to know the Lord. And this isn't a condemnation or a critique of his parents, but it does serve to regularly remind me of the difference between knowing about and knowing. Because as a father, I can't be content to simply teach my children to behave in a biblical manner or to attend worship and to be in the band, to sing in the choir, to be in the youth group and go on VBS projects and such. That's not what I've been called to as a Christ-exalting parent. I've been called to lead them to know Jesus. Now, the harsh reality is I can't save my children. Oh, that I could, but I can't. And I don't, know, I don't doubt a one of us would be thrilled if we could, but we can't for only God saves. So what can I do? I can show my children that following Jesus is a life-transforming experience. It isn't about following rules to merit God's love. It's all about God's gospel graciously changing us so completely that we cannot but follow his rules. I believe that the church in our nation so often perpetuates the very thing that we see condemned here in Judges 2, and that is we stop at teaching people about God, and we fail to teach them to know him. And, and I say this because of the glaring absence of any mention of sin in our teaching and preaching. Friends, if you can't know God if you don't confess your sin against him. And if the church doesn't tell you about it, how do they intend for you to deal with it? We live in a day and age much like that described here in chapter 2 where sin is just rampant and just as Israel's faith was their lifeline, so must it be ours. Tragically, as we see in our text here, their amnesia led to apostasy. May we not forget, church, what God has done for us and miss what one pastor theologian calls the astonishing character of our God. The astonishing character of our God as revealed in this text this morning. So would you look back with me and find verse 14 there in chapter 2, Judges 2, verse 14, where our author continues writing, In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around who they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them. Just as he had sworn to them, they were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived, for the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. And let's stop right there. Church, this passage is so powerful in its portrayal of Yahweh's complexity. Because you notice first there the faithfulness of his anger, the faithfulness of his anger. And I know this isn't often... Uh, that a character trait such as this is one that we envy or celebrate. But notice how Yahweh responds here in our text to Israel's Aaron. In verse 14, he's described as handing the people over to raiders in his anger. In the ESV, if you have an ESV translation, renders this verse as the anger of the Lord was kindled, like a fire 
that's being built. And he gave orders to give them over to plunderers. And following their forgetfulness, Yahweh angrily pursued his people, and he did so just as he'd promised, according to verse 15. In other words, God wasn't doing anything but what he had pledged to do should Israel stray. So back in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 17, the Lord informed Israel, I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you, and you will flee even though no one is following you. And then again in Deuteronomy 28, verse 25, when God pronounced his curses upon Israel from Mount Ebal, if you recall that story, he, he promised to cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will come at them from one direction, but flee from them in seven. You will become a thing of horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. So in these promises and, and in God's subsequent actions, as we see here recorded in Judges, God's faithfulness to his word is being expressed. And thus, this is an expression of his faithful anger. Now, I realize that this divine attribute surprises many today, particularly because we see God as love. And we live in a day and age where this love is the feature of God. He's love, and he wants everyone to love with a love that, that loves everyone, allows everyone to do whatever they want, whenever they want, for as long as they want, without any consequences, right? I mean, if I were to poll Salisbury, I can almost guarantee if I were to ask them which character trait or emotion they most closely associate with God, I guarantee it'd be love, wouldn't it? Because 1 John 4, 8 says what? God is love. And yet, church, God's anger as it is expressed here is the price that we pay for experiencing God's love. Let me say that again. God's anger as it is expressed here is the price that we pay for experiencing God's love. Do you remember how Yahweh introduced himself when he was on Mount Sinai to Israel along with Moses? Then he made his covenant with them? In Exodus 34, 14, God said this, Do not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. So church, jealousy is, is as one theologian noted, jealousy is the flip side of divine love. It's required where exclusive love is called for. When Melinda and I were first engaged, We'd been to Germany on a mission project with our church, and it was the first time that I'd ever visited Deutschland, my wife's childhood home, and so I was thrilled to get to know her past. And while we were there, she took me all over Weimar, which is the town in which she lived for the latter part of her, her, her teenage years, and so I was thrilled to get to go along with her. We went to her gymnasium, her high school. We went to the park there in Weimar, her favorite ice cream place. You name it, we went there, uh, because this was just an opportunity to get to know her better. But Unfortunately, we weren't going alone because we were on a mission trip. So I was having to watch her with one eye while trying to also keep an eye on all of these students that we were there to minister to because of the nature of our project. And so I had two eyes going two different directions. And I remember one day we were at this park, and we were with some of the students that we'd met. We were throwing a Frisbee. When all of a sudden I saw this super sketchy dude just come out from behind a bush and, and make a beeline towards my woman as she sat on a blanket. And, and, and it just caused me all manner of concern. Because for one, he, he looked like a bum. He looked like he'd just crawl out of a ditch or out from underneath a bridge. And that caused me great concern. Two, because he seemed very keen 
on my beautiful bride-to-be lying there on her blanket looking just absolutely gorgeous. Three, I, I couldn't have understood likely if I'd been close enough, but they were talking and they were sprecking in Deutsch and I had no idea what they were saying and that caused me even greater concern. So in retrospect, I think it was a polite manner in which I disengaged myself from the Frisbee throwing. Likely I just let the Frisbee go past and I, I took off after this guy. Now, I didn't tackle him because I, I'm a southern gentleman, went to school in Arkansas. I know you don't fight in front of your woman. You don't duel while she's watching. So I quietly called him over and then quickly informed him, I'm about to break your legs if you don't leave my girl alone. At which point he, he turned over to Melinda and said, could you, could you call your dog off? Could you call your dog off? It turned out this guy knew Melinda. They'd been students together in high school. They'd even sung in a choir together. So I, I very sheepishly thanked him for informing me of that before I dug a hole in which to bury his body. And then I, I went back to, to, to try and pick up my frisbee and interact with the wide-eyed students who were looking at what did we almost witness from this American man as he almost scalped one of our fellow Germans here in the backyard. But guys, I was crazy in love, and I was crazy jealous that anyone would come near my girl. And church, only to an infinite degree is this the faithful, angry love of God. And there's a contemporary Christian song that I believe attempts to capture this emotion, this sense with words like this. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down. It fights till I'm found. Leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. And yet you still give yourself away. Now, I have some problems with that term reckless, if you've heard the song, but I still believe that it's attempting to speak and capture this, this very attribute of God. And church, in a sense, I know that we all take great comfort in God's relentless love. We all do. But the problem with having the God of the Bible as our God means that with his love comes his jealousy. And to have a jealous God, is to, as, as one commentator observes, is to have an intolerant God. Love divine isn't some soft laxity, but a blazing intolerance. It's an absolute claim over the object of that love. So, the rich and astonishing character of our God revealed in this text is marked by his faithful anger, but then second, by the incredibility of his salvation. The incredibility of his salvation. And I believe that this glorious truth is evidenced there in our text when you put the events of verse 14 against those of verse 16. Verse 14 states that in his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders. The Lord handed them over to raiders. Then verse 16 reads that the Lord raised up judges who saved them. <laughs> how strange. Yeah, I love how one pastor, theologian, explains the apparent contradiction of these two verses when he says if, if we were writing this, then we would never have allowed these two statements to stand together. Time for an editor, he says. We would have had to have inserted in verse 15, Israel turned away from their evil forsook Baal, and sought the Lord. And he's right, isn't he? We'd have had to justify what we encounter, verse 16, after we've been given what is there in verse 14. Instead, what I believe we see, church, is a unique formula that's being captured here in this text. And in verses 11 through 23, what we see is the beginning of this description of a pattern 
of the apostasy of Israel that we see described in verses 11 through 13. That's then led to God's anger, which is captured verse 14 to 15, which is then followed by God's grace, as we saw in verse 16. But then we see following this, verse 17 through 19, once again, Israel's apostasy. And then the very thing that follows is God's wrath, once again, which is the conclusion of chapter 2. And church, what I believe that our author is trying to do here in this chapter is to capture the beautiful truth that the God who justly casts us down is the very same God who graciously lifts us up. The God who justly casts us down is the same God who graciously lifts us up. So what we read about here is the glorious mystery of the gospel. That God so loved his creation, his fallen, broken, marred by sin creation, that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him, repents of their sin, will not perish, but will have eternal life. And don't forget that God sent Christ not when we asked him to, or because we wanted him to. God sent Jesus Christ into the world when we despised him, when we were still his enemy, despite all that God had done for us. We still rejected him, and yet he still saves us by his grace through faith in Jesus. Have you experienced this glorious salvation of God? Because if you haven't, you know you can today. And and if, if you confess your sin and you believe in Jesus, then you can know this incredible salvation which marks our God's character. So his character is marked by his faithful anger, the incredibility of his salvation, and then third, his amazing patience. His amazing patience. After each period of grace here, we see Israel return to their sin and in greater and greater measure. However, rather than reading how God finally has had enough and now he decimates Israel once and for all, what we continue to see, verse 20 through 23, and then again in chapter 3, verse 1 through 4, is, is Yahweh placing Israel under disciplinary judgment to test them. Despite their heinous disobedience, their their infuriating stubbornness. God continues to provide them with opportunities to live faithfully before him. Friends, how how grateful are we that because of our God's great patience, we're not consumed. Because as Jeremiah tells us, his mercies are new every morning. Now, I don't know about you, but I am so quick to castigate Israel for their constant wandering. And yet, I feel that in every day God gives me, I am learning more and more just how like Israel I am. I don't deserve what God has given me or, or done for me. I'm no better than these described in our text. Because if I were left to myself, I'd be worshiping in Baal's temple. And I know this because I still battle the temptations that marked Canaanite's religion. But thanks be to God, because of his great love, he's forgiven my sin. He's changed my heart. So now I belong to Jesus. Do you know the freedom of God's great salvation? Are you still battling on your own, enslaved to sin? And with that in mind, there's a final point that I'd like to make as we close this morning. And that is the increasing slavery of sin. The increasing slavery of sin. And I believe this truth comes as the the culmination of all that our author records in chapter 3, verse 1 through 4, and then it climaxes with these words in verse 5 and 6. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons. 
and serve their gods. The tragedy of Israel's story at this stage is that despite all that they'd seen and experienced, they couldn't overcome the sin that gripped their hearts. And so what began as, as simply living beside quickly became full-blown assimilation. And church, I believe that this is a powerful warning that we need to hear and that we need to heed. Because men and women, we live surrounded by sin. Our, our culture, like that of Canaan, is given to greater and greater expressions of sexual immorality. It's on TV, it's on the internet, it's in music, on the sports field. It's, it's everywhere. Sin is everywhere. And if, if we make concession, willful concession, to live alongside of it, slavery will ensue and inevitably lead to all of the heartache that we see described in this text. And so I challenge us all this morning, take some time in this week that's coming with God's help, ask the Lord to help evaluate your life, activities, speech, and see where have, if we have, begun to assimilate American culture. Do, do we catch ourselves watching television shows with images that are inappropriate and that we might be embarrassed by if we were to be caught watching those with someone else from our church family? Or do, do we watch TV shows and hear things on the internet, read articles online that, that might have language that's offensive and that we might even share and not even catch ourselves doing so? You know, like the expression, oh my God. If you think about acknowledging laws of God, everybody, almost everybody, it gives the ten, right? The big ten. And of the big ten, one spoke to that very, very thing. And yet, how common is it that we hear that form of expression used today? Church, might we seek to be like Christ, that we might lead others to know Him, so that rather than the church becoming like the world, our world will begin to resemble Christ, who is the head of His church. Would you pray with me to that end as we close? Lord God, You have so graciously showed us in the scriptures how incapable we are of saving ourselves. For Father, we are each and every one exactly like the people of Israel. Father, our hearts are, are marred by sin. Lord, sin is not something that we simply acquire as we grow up. It is something that is expressed from our hearts. And therefore, there is nothing that we could do to free ourselves from this enslavement. Lord, and we try, many do, unsuccessfully. And at times, we may even feel like we're overcoming because of the metrics of our culture encourage individualism and effort, fixing our minds and setting our hearts to, we can accomplish whatever we desire. But Lord, at the end of the day, the truth is, those efforts simply lead to heartache, emptiness, disappointment. For we cannot save ourselves. We cannot give our lives purpose. We cannot keep ourselves from sin's enslaving power, which is why you sent Jesus like us in every way, and yet without sin, 
able to fulfill your laws perfectly, God, then taking upon himself all of our inability, failure, brokenness, dying in our place to satisfy your righteous anger, and then rising from the dead so that whoever seeks your forgiveness, whoever believes in Jesus, is clothed with his perfect righteousness. God, this is the gift of the gospel. This is the great salvation which you extend so lovingly, graciously. Father, thank you that as we encounter these stories of the scriptures, we are brought back constantly to this same truth. We need Jesus. Father, would you help us as we consider our lives, we who live in a culture that is so easily misconstrued as being Christian. Father, so many subtleties that we face. May we be wise as the scriptures relate that wisdom to serpents. May we be wise, sensitive to the dangers that lurk all around us in so many ways. But may we then be innocent, God, as you again attribute that attribute to a dove. May we be innocent. Lord God, would you choose to continue to use us for your glory. Lord, and we may be reminded today of just how amazing is your salvation, which you have worked for us in Jesus. And it's his name we pray. Amen.